Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at FunkinStuff.net and on YouTube. Truth and Rhythm can now also be enjoyed on the go inside of your podcast edition from FunkinStuff.net, iTunes, and other leading providers. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything's on the One, the first guide to funk. If you don't have it, you better get your copy. As always, whether you're watching or listening, I thank you very much for your ongoing support. And you've tuned in for a, a great episode because my guest today, let me make sure I get his uh, credits up here, bassist, composer, and singer George Porter Jr., one of the founders and original members of New Orleans' legendary quartet, The Meters. Although the band and its unique gumbo of rhythm and soul never crossed over with monster hits or sold millions of albums, their enduring influence as a touchstone of funk music's foundation is undeniable. Starting out as a ha house band for Alan Toussaint, 1960s soul classics, the Meters released eight of their own studio albums produced by Toussaint from 1969 to 1977. These albums were filled with mostly instrumentals that were often extremely catchy and usually supremely funky. Some of the band's better known songs were Sophisticated Sissy, that's C-I-S-S-Y, Sissy Strut, Look Up Hot Pie, Chicken Strut, The World Is A Bit Under The Weather, People Say, Hey Pocky Away, Africa, Fire On The Bayou, and Funkify Your Life. The Meters were musicians' musicians, and as such, backed many of contemporary music's biggest names in the studio or shared time on stage. That list includes Robert Palmer, Dr. John, Patti LaBelle, Paul McCartney, and the mid-70s, The Meters were invited guests as opening act for the Rolling Stones. Since breaking up in the late 1970s, for the past several decades, the band members have performed and recorded together in myriad combinations, as well as worked as ace session players with a who's who of popular music stars. Porter regularly plays with several different bands on a regular basis, as well as doing one-offs and making guest appearances. Some of the other well-known and diverse names he has played with include Robbie Robertson, David Byrne, Harry Connick Jr., Warren Haynes, and Tori Amos. Through it all, he has remained a class act, a consummate pro, and a bass funk master. So with all that, George, how are you today? Good to see you. <laughs> Great to be here, Scott. Uh, I'd like to go and clear up one thing. Sure. Uh, um, the um, the meters as a group did not record with Paul McCartney. Uh, uh, the um, and and I I have I have a problem remembering exactly who was in the studio that day when um, when Paul recorded a Mardi Gras song that um that i don't ever i don't remember if that ever was released to the world i know i know wwoz at home got to play it but it, it was like it was a re, he, he recorded this mardi gras song and then the people that was hanging around the studio who consisted of earl king and um benny spellman and you know um curly moore and a few other people myself and I want to say, I think Leo Nosenteller, they might have been in the studio that day. 
we played percussions and cowbells and um and and made some street sounds, you know, to 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 kind of uh, to kind of emulate emulate that the parade was coming by you on the record. So on the 45, you can hear the, the sounds that we were making with the cowbells and the screams and stuff go from one side to the record to the other side of the record. You know, that was the extent of my recording with with, 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 with Paul McCartney. Um, the meter, and I don't, I, don't, I don't really know how that got out there, but it keeps coming back. No matter how many times I say it, I've said it in interviews, that it didn't happen, it keeps coming back as you know as the meters recorded with Paul McCartney, and that's you know that's so untrue. I, I hope I hope maybe this show clears that up <laughs> forever. Okay, well, very good. This is truth and rhythm, so we definitely wanted to keep it truthful. So thanks for clarifying that. You're but right. re regardless, uh, I mean, all the other people that you've played with, I mean, very very impressive. Absolutely, we had we had a uh, um, the band had a a, a a really wonderful um, how you say career of 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 of, of people that we recorded with, uh, and some had big hits out of it. You know, they, you know, we were on a few big hits, so it was cool. Very good. So, and, and you're coming from New Orleans today, your your home studio. We were talking earlier. Yeah, right? I'm a, I'm up up on the third floor in my home, uh, in my own um, project studio. Yes. Mm -hmm. And how much time, you know, out of the year nowadays, do you, do you generally spend that close to home? Um, not as much as I would like to. Um, you know, I had, I think this summer was one of the busiest summers I've had in probably six, seven years, which I mean, I'm not complaining, but it's, uh, um, but usually during this, during the summer months is when I get to spend more time up here. And, um, but this was a good summer. It was a good summer. So I'll get to, I got no, I got pretty much November and early December sitting around the house. So I'll probably work, I'll be up here working on a, uh, I'm recording a new project um, with um, with a with a, a trio called the Porter Trio, for the um, for the sake of not having a better name at this point. That's um, we've been um, it's been a, a trio with Michael Lemlo on keyboards, which is my keyboard player with the running partners, and also the drummer with running partners, um, Terrence Houston, and we've been playing at the club on uh, called the Maple Leaf Uptown New Orleans every Monday. And we've been multi-tracking that gig every every Monday night. So um, hopefully sometime during November and early December, I'll actually sit down and get to go through some of those recordings. Cause I haven't had time to listen to any of that stuff yet. You actually doing anything original or all covers or what? No, it's, um, um, well, you can say the, um, probably the first 45 to 50 minutes of the set is stuff that happens off the top of our heads. You know, it's, we just start playing. It's that's like um, it's an unrehearsed, unprompted kind of gig. We just start playing. Then usually the second set, I you know I play some you know some noticeable songs that people might know New Orleans stuff. Some couple of meter songs, you know, and um, some old New Orleans stuff. You know. Yeah. Nice. I look forward to hearing that. <laughs> so George, uh, if you could take viewers and listeners. Uh, back a little bit to, you know, um, how you first got into music and how you ended up with the bass 
and how you ended up in the meters. So, well, I I got my mother gave me a guitar uh, for a Christmas slash birthday present uh, at, at the age. Well, I got it on Christmas Day, so that means I was still seven. I hadn't gotten to be eight yet. I turned eight the day after Christmas. Uh, I got my guitar and. Um, and, you know, and but it, the the rule was that I had to take lessons. I just couldn't, you know, be making noise around the house craziness. You know, so I had to take and I had to go to a, a study a, a study with a, a teacher, and I did for two years. And um. And you know, for, I guess but it probably all boiled down to I was studying because of the type of instrument I had. Which was a, was a kind of gut head um, classical guitar. It was a classical guitar for the most part. Uh, um, there was, um, you know, the teacher that I had was, you know, was teaching me the formula of playing classical, meaning that I was playing with ten fingers, you know, and um, and the songs that he had me playing were, you know, was kind of old cowboy songs, you know, Home on the Range and Ray River Valley and those kind of songs. Because of the, the I guess because the 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 formula that we're going to take to play the music, he he started with songs that were simply based that you know that I could learn how to do the both, and I you know I I didn't have a problem with that at all. I was playing a guitar, you know that was wow, I'm playing guitar, you know, um, but. <laughs> One day on my day on my way to um, my one Saturday on my way to class, I changed my route that I usually walk to the bus station to the bus stop and <laughs> turned the block earlier and walked over an additional block and to and turned on Gravity Street to go to Galvis Street to catch the bus at Tulane and Galvis. And when I turned that corner and I turned from off of uh, off of um I can't remember what street that was. It might have been Johnson maybe or Robinson. Uh, onto Robinson and Gravia, I heard music. So as I got closer to the house, I rec I rec I saw this older guy his in his and then what turned out to be his grandson, um, playing, you know, guitars. And I, you know, I stopped and was watching him and I noticed that the old man he was playing a guitar. He was playing with this classical kind of formula, but the songs he was playing was, you know, was was, was blues. You know, it was. Mm. I, I said, well, "Wow, <laughs> that's the songs I want. <laughs> I wanted to play." You know, I said, "You know," so I, you know, needless to say, I, you know, I started paying attention to what he was doing. Although I did what my what my teacher had me doing, I, I stayed with my classes. But at the next recital that we were supposed to do, um, they had me down on the recital that's playing um, home, home on home, no Red River, Red River Valley or something like that. One of those songs, Red, Home on a Ranch or Red River Valley. One of those songs. And um, instead of playing that song, I played St. Louis Woman, mm -hmm. and my teacher just said, "Out." You're undisciplined. You're out of here. He fired me. <laughs> so, so then I ended my my lessons. But then I just kept studying. You know, uh, um, you know, by watching Papi play and his grandfather play. And then there was a on Fridays and Saturday nights on a corner from my house. 
these guys used to play, you know, they um they would play, you know, there'd be about seven, eight guitar players in there and one bass player, and they would be they'll be playing all night for hours until my mom called me to come home. I'll sit out on the steps and listen at these guys play, you know. Hmm. And so I was like I was like a, a recorder, you know. I hear what these guys were doing, and then I go home and I'll just figure it out, you know. I did. I learned a lot of songs. Never knew the names of any of them. <laughs> you know, I learned a lot of songs just from hearing those guys play them. You know, soaking it up like a sponge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was. I was sponge. I was a big sponge. I was seriously, you know, eighty-seven pound sponge. <laughs> and so, when did you get into uh, playing bass and 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 doing it in front of people? Well. <clears throat> Playing bass was almost like a natural move from from because of the when I was studying the classical formula, I was playing bass at the same time all the time. So um, when I started really like studying with Papi, uh, um, you know, we would swap off. You know, he would play guitar some, and I would play bass, and then I would play guitar, and he played bass, and we would we would learn songs. So we got the I got to learn songs, you know, from Papi. And uh, um, and he, and he would get to try out things, you know, and and um, and I, you know, we would we would go back and forth, you know. I would play bass sometimes, he played guitar, and and vice versa. We would just do that, and I probably did that for a couple of years, you know. And um, so I think playing bass, I was probably playing bass by, you know, really playing bass, uh, you know, by probably eleven, you know, uh, um. Now, when did I start getting paid for playing bass? I believe the very first paying gig that I got for for playing bass, and that night I actually I actually played bass and guitar. Uh, um, well, Papi had gotten this. It was a sanctified church like down the street from us, um, um, from his house on Gravity Street, because he was on Gravity, Gravity right off of Russia Russia Blade, Gravity and Russia Blade, and I was on Padita. And um and I don't know, I can't remember what my street was, um um Durgenwall. And so we know we're like actually two blocks away from each other. Um and um this church was like two blocks from Papi's house on Gravity Street. And um and they you know, he would go play gigs over there every night, you know, sometimes on on, on um when they, you know, might be a Thursday or Friday night. Uh, uh, and they would, you know, they have a rehearsal, and I would that particular night they didn't have a, a bass player, they didn't have a guitar player, so Papi played guitar, and he got me to come play bass, and I got paid a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my very my very first playing gig. Wow. So and <clears throat> excuse me, when did you uh, or how did you become involved with Alan Toussaint? and you know get into that scene well i would think that it have to go back a little bit further um uh after after i moved uptown um i i was hanging out with a, a guitar player named herbert wing and um he um him and coming just so having pop with the bass player in herbert's band it was called aurora knights and um so I, my involvement with those guys, I was probably 16 years old, probably by then, and um, and you know 
I knew how to play. I knew how to play by then. I was, I was very front. And I was not only a bass player and a guitar player, but I was also playing drums. Mm -hmm. um, so um, so we was playing fraternity houses and stuff like that. And so I, you know, I was more like originally in that band, I was like, the, I was a roadie. I was the, I think I was the first New Orleans roadie ever. <laughs> and, um, you know, so I helped them with the gear, helped them set up and stuff like that. And uh, and then when, if somebody needs to run off the band stage for whatever reason, to get away for a couple of minutes, I would play that instrument, you know, meaning not the keyboards. I would always just play bass, guitar, or drums, you know, maybe got to play one or two songs on drums. Um, and, um, you know, Papi, um, the bass player, he would never really, I didn't get to do too much bass playing when he was on a gig because he was like, he was like always on his instrument. You know, the guitar players may want to take a break or something like that. I'll get to play a guitar on one song, more than no more than one song. The drummers was the ones who was, you know, would want to go away for longer. Um, I got to meet um, Art Neville through Herbert Wing. Um, Art called Herbert to play to play a gig with him at a club called the Mass Lounge, where um, Art was a, um, a keyboard player. He was like a, a guest artist, and they played with the house band. And um, but Art would always bring a guitar player, a uh, band leader, you know, somebody you know that could talk to the band, talk keys and stuff like that to the band, and. Um, sort of like a band leader and um so um herbert couldn't play that gig but you know he he thought that i could do the gig you know because he knew that he knew the songs art was doing he knew i could play them but what he didn't think of is that art was going to want somebody to play guitar solos and i was not a guitar solo i wasn't a soloist i can play rhythm guitar not solo and um so at the end of that night I mean, I thought the gig went well. The fact that every time he all turned around and tell me to play a solo, I would shake my head and say no. Uh, um, but at the end of the night, all said told me, he said, man, you're the worst guitar player I've ever seen, you know? And, uh, and, and that, was, that was my first encounter with Art Neville. And the, the next time I got to see Art was probably a couple of years later. Um, <clears throat> I was playing at a club called the Cindy Club, and um, across the street from the Cindy Club was Charlie's Corners, where all of the, the you know, the um, the who's who of the uh, of the R and B community would hang out. It's like it was not necessarily a key club, but the door wasn't open. You had to knock on the door, and a guy would look through the window and, and see who you are, and then he would let you in. Not everybody got to go in there, but. Um, Art and Fast Domino probably were two of the biggest, you know, artists that hung out there. And um, and on many a nights, on many a Saturday nights, Fast would come over across the street, and and um, and and he usually come about the last half hour of our set before we getting ready to go off. He would show up and want to play. And when he when he comes over and wants to play, once Fast starts playing, you know. You know, when he looks up, it's an hour and a half later. You know, we we didn't play an hour an hour overtime. You know, and and um, but you know, you don't tell fast. Say, it's time for us to leave. You know, you know, when fast start playing, you let him play. But one of those nights, Art came over with him, 
at that point I was playing bass guitar with Irvin Bannister's band at the time. And um and Art uh, at the end of the night at the end of the gig, Art came up to me and told me, say, now that's the instrument you ought to be playing, you know. And um and he didn't question me on it, but at the time the bass that I was playing only had three strings on it. You know, he never he never questioned me about it. He asked me if I wanted a gig, and I said, "Yeah, you know." And so I I took the I took a gig with him, um, playing at a club called the Nightcap. Is where Alan Toussaint first started coming in to see the band because we, we were playing there like four nights a week. I think it was like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And um, so Alan, you know, the little word got around that Art Neville has a new band, and um, you know people were coming to see Art Neville in his new band, you know, and every now and then um, Aaron would show up and sing a song. Usually on Sundays, Aaron would show up and um, do a song or two. And um, so, you know, that was, you know, that was pretty much the beginning stages of what eventually became to meet us after we left the nightcap. We left, we played the nightcap for a, probably another year and a half maybe, and then moved to the French quarters to the Ivanhoe. And at that point, at the nightcap, it was a five-piece band. It was um, Leo Nocentelli, Joseph Madeles, was actually Zigaboo was the second drummer. Well, Joseph Madeles is Zigaboo. Um, the first, the first, the original drummer in that band was a kid named Glenn. I can never remember what Glenn's last name was, or whatever you know, whatever how, how he, he disappeared off the scene. I don't know where he went. But he had to go make, he had a small medical problem that he had to take care of, took him off the gig for two weeks. And Zig played those two weeks. Well, that, that Sunday, um, Glenn came back and let everybody know he was all right and he was ready to come back. And he heard Zig playing the gig and he told the guy at the door who was actually one of the owners, he told him and said, I don't think I'm getting this gig back. <laughs> and uh, um, Monday, he came to the club, took his drums and disappeared and never seen him again, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so Zigaboo ended up, you know, playing the, at that point, getting a gig. But the, um, so it was Zig, Leo, Art, myself, and a saxophone player named Gary Brown that left the nightcap and went to the French Quarters, to the Ivanhoe at the French Quarters. And we were at the Ivanhoe, um, for I, I, I want to say a year and something, um, and we were there, and I kind of get lost on the thing. Well, I know one thing that I was on Bourbon Street when my daughter was born, so that was in 1968. Um, I was also on Bourbon Street when Martin Luther King was assassinated. I'm not sure when that was. Uh, um, shame on me. But um, Well, that was also 68, wasn't it? That was also 68, uh, yeah. could have very well been. Uh, um, so, and we would, we know that's when, at that point, Allen used to drive, at that time, Bourbon Street, you could still drive your car down Bourbon Street. Yeah. And Allen used to, used to uh, the doorman used to always tell us, he said, yeah, your, your, your friend, um, your friend, uh, uh, Allen Toussaint was sitting at the career listening at y'all play, you know, he would tell us, he tell us that a couple of nights a week, you'll see that, you know, your boy was here. And um, then one one day, Art, uh, I guess it was a Monday or a Tuesday, uh, Art said that um, that you know that we Alan wanted us to come down to the studio, and um, and do some and do some recording, 
And that's where it all began. So that was that was in '68, then, huh? '68. Yeah. Because okay. I used to always say something. I always always think for some reason think '67. You know, but, but I guess yeah, it must have been really '68. I might have to go back and redo my bio. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get that in the Paul McCartney straight. <laughs> that in Paul McCartney straight. <laughs> so. <clears throat> How would you describe the dynamic or chemistry among the members of the meters in the early stages? Well, one of the things that I think that we had going for us was by playing four nights a week at the nightcap, and then once we moved into the um, to, um to, to Bourbon Street, we were playing six nights a week down there, and. You know, playing. You know, at on Bourbon Street, we was playing full sets a night. At the nightcap, we would do two almost two ninety minute sets. I mean, it would it'd be almost a. It was now actually, we did three one hour sets uh, at the nightcap. So it was basically a four hour gig. You know. Um. So, we put in a lot of playing and listening to each other. So you know, I think it was it, it was something that we did really well. Was we had a we we, you know, we heard each other, we listened well, and you know, so we were able to play off of each other really, really well. You know, and I think that if there was anything, if there was a secret to what we were doing, it was that was the secret. You know, whenever whenever we started playing, um we play it off of each other really well. So you ended up kind of having almost like a ESP in a way or something like <clears throat> you become yeah, yeah, it one. Could, it, could be, it could be some ESP <laughs> stuff in there. Um, the, we just, you know, I just, I think it, basically I believe that's just the bottom line was that we, was, we listened to each other really well. Um, and and that's I think that was one of the things that that Alan heard when he when he got in what got involved with us is he thought that you know because you know he one of the things that he did and one of the things he didn't do uh, was allow us to be who we were when we first got in the studio with him because he basically what he did is continue to doing what he had been doing before he brought us in was uh, um you know he was dictating the music you know what he wanted everybody to play and how he how, uh, how, how he played it i mean almost all of the sessions that we did with alan um my bass line was in his left hand and uh, uh um you know and and leo's and leo's guitar parts were spelled out at some point you know during 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 Alan sent the only person that didn't get a part dictated to was Art. He just never told Art anything to play. He just said that Art never was going to play what he was going to play, <laughs> you know, and, and all of that was good for him, you know. But Zig, Leo, and myself, most of our parts were dictated. So it was kind of like a a, a, a boot camp in a way, sort of like a boot camp, but um, you know, uh, uh but but it was was he wanted us to play like we play the parts he gave us, but to play them, um, you know, he didn't want us to read. He didn't want it, he didn't want the music because all of his earlier sessions that he did, um, the, 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 the studio, the musicians in the studio were reading, reading dots. 
and it was it was something sterile about the the dot reading that that he wanted to get uh, get away from. So he thought that uh, uh, having us because of the way that we played off of each other um, would take away from the, the dot reading. Uh, um, and in some sense it did, but in, 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 in another sense it really didn't because uh, I don't believe our freedom as, as being that, you know, that band that kind of leans sideways a little bit, you know, uh, um, when when you when you start getting to play parts, it kind of straightens you up, you know, and you and you you're playing on cue, and you're playing these parts over and over again, you know. So it wasn't, so it was so you, it was hard to take those parts and slinky them, you know, and, and, and make them. So, um, so I believe, as, in some sense, he may have not. Well, I think he was getting what he wanted, but I don't believe he was getting what. You know, he, he that that could have happened if you know if he would have just said, "Here's the song, play it." You know, like like what happened with the Robert Palmer project. You know, Robert Palmer came in, you know, played some, you know, played some acoustic guitar, and the parts that we played, we wrote. You know, it was it was the band. Everybody wrote their own parts of the songs that to the to responded to his guitar thing. What what year was that about the rubber pump? What year was that? Yeah, I I don't remember when that sneak and salad through the alley record was done. You know, some of that stuff just kind of void past me. Like Robert's record really void past me because after 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 we did the record and he came out, he made a made a, a big splash in the in the community. When we got to when we got to see the record, he didn't even have our names on the record. He didn't even. It mentioned that we played on the record, you know. It was like, wow. <laughs> Not cool. <clears throat> George, can you talk to me a little bit about the this the New Orleans music scene in general around that time from the late sixties into the early seventies? You know, for, for especially for an outsider. I mean, I've been to the city, you know, a few times, but you know, I certainly don't know it that well. Um, talk about, you know, the, the the vibe there, the feel, the influences, and, and, and music. What what makes that you know region so unique and special and and rich musically? Well, you know, I I can only maybe speak for the you know between sixty six, sixty seven, <clears throat> early seventies. Yeah, like 70, 71, because after after seventy after nineteen seventy, you know, we were barely home, you know. So you know, our music scene for us early early seventies changed drastically, you know. Uh, um. So um. You know the fact that when we when when we get home off the road, the last thing we wanted to do was go hang out in the joint, you know. So, so I, would, I would stay home with the family and stuff. You know, I had to had to get to know my my know my daughter because um she didn't know who it, she did. She asked her mom who that guy is. <laughs> you know? So we were gone so much, and you know, doing the I mean actually as much during the late sixties as well. You know, I mean when we left Bourbon Street, you know there were there were um. I want to say when we left Bourbon Street, there was only maybe three black artists on Bourbon Street. Um, 
It was Frogman Henry that played at the 544 across the street from um, from the Ivanhoe, and uh, Cousin Joe, and uh, and the trumpet player that played with Cousin Joe. I can't I can't remember his name now. Um, but then all the rest of the rest of the blocks all all gone towards Canal Street from five six. Uh, five, four, three, two. There was nothing in the 100 block. Um, well, um, you know, well, I guess the, no. I say that. I, say, I may have said that wrong because um, the the something door, something door. I can't remember the name of it. They had it was a black jazz band, jazz band, and then but there was, there was the, the club had um, blues bands, and it varied from from uh, um, mostly white bands that might have had a, a, a black blues front orders um al hurt had um one black musician in his band and um that's pretty much was it you know um for us to you know the, the music scene frankie ford had was doing the backstage with his band and um there was you know the, the music scene i mean i think the, i thought the music scene was was um was flourishing more much more now i think now than um, than it is today most much more then than it is today because well they had back in the in the, in the late 60s there were two strips well three strips not counting two strips besides bourbon street one in uptown claiborne avenue and one on the downtown side of claiborne avenue and he's in the, and the one on Uptown said had four balls, three balls that had black musicians playing in it. And then the one downtown, there was four balls that had black musicians playing it. And, and one of them, the, um, the bands didn't start until three o'clock in the morning. They played at seven. And, um, you know, and a lot of times, uh, um, you know, the guys that got off at the do drop or any of the clubs from Uptown would end up at that club, that one little club on on, on the corner of uh, of Claiborne and um, what's that street? No, that for next. Oh, jeez, the mind is the first thing to go. <laughs> uh, I can't. I think can't think of the name of the street, but it's like two blocks off of off of off, off of uh, Orleans Avenue. Um, they would end up on that in that corner in that joint. So the club itself, basically at four o'clock in the morning, it was all it was like 80% musicians, you know, mm -hmm. hanging out. I mean, they would hang out and party, you know, but, and, you know, and sometimes there'd be a jam session and, you know, guys would just swap up. And it was the Lasty Brothers um, band that was playing there, um, David Lasty and his brother Walter. Um, and who eventually, I, I, I became a bass player in, in that band um, a few years, you know, maybe like 10 years, like somewhere, must have been like in the 70 it was after we did that rolling stone so it might be 70s 76 77 maybe i played with david and his brother until walter passed away and i stayed i played with david until david passed away you know i mean the music scene you know i mean again like the, the cabinet i didn't answer your question it was the, I, I thought the music scene was um was very fruitful, you know. I mean, for a young player coming up in in, in New Orleans in the in the in the sixties, you had you had more um, musicians willing to openly share 
their information. Um, you know, um, today, um, and I would think that more than likely the, the things that happened in the late seventies and throughout the eighties with, with, you know, with musicians sharing ideas and then the people who they share those ideas, but take those ideas and go off and make tons of money with it. <laughs> you know, uh, I think musicians started realizing that, man, I'm gonna sit on my stuff. You know, I ain't, I ain't, I'm not passing this idea on anyone. But then at the same time, they stifle um, their own their own thing because you know they they're not willing to um, be more open about what they're doing and how they do it. You know. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Certainly a lot of influences, you know, converging in New Orleans though with, you know, the French and the and the and the jazz and the and the funk and and all those kinds of uh, blues. Uh, you know, that really comes out of the music in a different way than other areas and, and has a unique quality for sure. So I'm 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 thinking those I mean those uh, influences certainly informed what you guys did. Um, so I was wondering, you know, from that perspective, you know, what that environment was was like. Well, you know, I have I have very very little information about how how you know and and I've had that I bumped heads with French writers, you know, because you know um, they um, assume that everything that we do that we do here in New Orleans is because of the French, and and. Um, so uh, uh, I have I've always had a, a bump heads with you know with, with any of the writers that seem to want to think that um, what we do here is um, because of the French influence. I cannot verify one way or the other whether you know because I don't I don't know I didn't know any French playing musicians <laughs> you know. That uh, that came to New Orleans, or that was in New Orleans when I was a kid, and and had any in, in, input or influence on how I played or how or what I listened to. <laughs> um, you know, the people who I listened to, uh, you know, as a kid was you know was the Fast Dominoes, the Earl Kings, the Benny Spellmans, um, you know, Frankie Ford. I listened to Frankie Ford, Huey Smith and the Clowns. You know. Uh, um, you know that's what, that was my influence. It was R and B. You know, I mean, I heard I heard and played jazz when I got into the clubs. My dad listened to jazz. Uh, you know, uh, um, um, at home, but I didn't know who he was listening to. I didn't know who those artists was until years and years later. You know, when I was much more, much actually an adult when when I heard songs being played and and and, and, I, and I asked you know. Who's that? Who's who's that song by? You know, the guys say, "Oh, oh, that's Sonny Stitt, or that's John Coltrane, or you know, Dexter Gordon, or something like that." When I started learning about that influence of other states, you know, being played in Louisiana or in New Orleans, um, so you know, I mean, my I, I would think that my direct musical influence was came from everybody that was born and raised here you know and and um so and and that i can i at one time i could reach out and touch you know so that was important to me you know and i believe that um um 
you know, there was some, um, uh, we, we played a song, um, I played a song with the Johnny Vodakovich trio about three weeks ago, him and the guitar player named Steve Mazakowski. And um, they played a song called Sidewinder. I hadn't played that song in 40 years. And I remember the very first time I played that song uh, was at the, the very first Jazz and Heritage Festival that it had, it hadn't, you know, it was in Armstrong Park and, and, and it was an inside performance. And it was Ellis Marcellus band. And um, the bass player was late for the gig and I was there. And Ellis, you know, called me up and I played with him. And the first and the only time I played with Ellis ever. Uh, uh, and, uh, um, and he played that song. And, you know, and basically, he basically taught the song to me on the spot. I learned the song on the spot. Mm -hmm. And I never knew the name of the song. Never knew. I walked away after playing the gig because the bass player showed up, like, you know, almost close to the end of that song. And I left the stage and they, they waved at me and they, <laughs> it was the end of that. And, you know, 40 years later, I find out the name of the song, you know, and I remember. But then, like I said, three weeks ago, uh, uh, Steve Mazakowski started off this song. And, you know, at, so at the end of the song, I said, man, you know, the first time I played this song, I, I played it at the, you know, at, at the auditorium with Ellis Marcellus. And, and, uh, and I said, what's the name of that song? <laughs> and Steve said it was named Sidewinder. And it was, I think, Lee Morgan, I believe, was, was the artist, so, Trump, the trumpet player. So I said, oh, yeah, okay, cool. I learned that song when I was 15 years old, you know, and I, but never knew who it was for. And then I only maybe played it once, twice, maybe in my whole entire life until the other day. Well, so now we'll look for you to play it again in 2057 or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll be 108 years old or something like that. <laughs> hey, there you go. Uh, George, what about uh, bigger outside influences? I mean, you've touched on some, but what about, you know, some of the uh, guys that were, you know, <clears throat> getting hits and getting attention uh, more in the mainstream musically? You know, who are some of the ones that you admired or looked up to, whether it's James Brown or other guys? You know, what were those influences? Uh, you know, I'm the, I'm the last person to ask those questions. I hate music. So I, I didn't listen to it. You know, I didn't listen to the James Browns. I didn't listen. I mean, I played this music. I played it. Absolutely. Uh, um, when when the live at the Apollo came out, I was in the, in the uh, uh, Her Herbert Wings band and they played that whole entire album from the from first song to the last song. They played that whole. Sometimes they would play it as an album. They would just play the whole record just as it was because that was a big record in New Orleans. That that whole album was huge in New Orleans, and um, so Herbert. I remember Herbert playing that that record, and uh, you know, I remember playing, uh, you know, some of those songs, if not all of them, at one point, you know. Um, but as far as going out and seeking out, you know, um, um other outside influence musically, I didn't do it. I just didn't do it. Um. When I when I had downtime musically downtime, I would listen to classical music, you know. And then and then it was like people that asked me all the time and say, Well, who do you like listening to? And I said, you know, I had a whole bunch of I joined that album back in the in the in the in early seventies, I believe, 
I believe it was, it may have been the late 60s. Um, what was it? I can't even remember the name of it, but there was a company that put out the whole bunch of, uh, you join a club. And, oh, and, Col and, Columbia? Columbia Records? Columbia, Columbia Records. Yeah. Columbia Records. And I joined that club and got all of these uh, stacks of, uh, of classical music. And uh, and and I would just listen to her stuff, but you know, I mean, I mean, not you know, and I listened to it mostly because it was, it kind of took me away from, you know, of uh, 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 the downbeats or the or the backbeats of music, you know, and some of that music didn't have backbeats in it. It just was, you know, it just was music that floated on the air, and a lot of that music worked well with acid. So you know, I was, I was really happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> What what about any other uh, bass players that you would you know be curious about you know whether uh, there was, James Jamerson or, or there was I knew the, I knew who those people were and you know I knew I knew um, I you know I knew those guys much later in life um, but no I did not listen to them I did not listen to them I you know I I, could, I just I just didn't do it I was not one of those people who went bought records to listen to somebody. Well, actually, I didn't buy records at all. <laughs> all right, fair enough. So you got the first album out in 69, I think it was. You know, what was it like having a record out, something that was in stores, could be bought? Maybe you heard uh, a song on the radio for the first time. What was that experience like for you and, and for the band? Well, I, I can't answer for the band. Uh, it was, you know, for me, it was like, like way cool. You know, it's, it was like, you know, yeah, man, I got a record out now that's on a, on a shelf that's a couple of, a couple of, couple of um, spaces over from a James Brown, you know, from a Sam Cooke. You know, you know, that's pretty cool. I mean, I thought that was really cool. You know, um, I was not prepared at all for the pitfalls that came with being an artist you know because nobody prepared you for that you know nobody prepared you for bad management you know nobody prepared you for promoters that screw you out of your money you know or don't want to pay you at the end of the evening do you not prepare for that you know uh, uh no one there's there's no, and none of the books says nobody talks about the um you know that part of the preparation you know so you um you know you learn you learn that on the road you you you're away from home and you you find out that you know um the second night out you know two thousand miles away from home the guy decides to run out on the money you know and uh and you know and say oh, wow <laughs> you know you weren't prepared for that you know I mean the excitement being young players you know. Uh, out on the road, well, we we were in our early twenties. Um, you know, um, so Art was like in his thir early thirties. That had been out there. You know, he he had he had he knew the some of the uh, the pitfalls of the of being a in a tour band. Leo had 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 also had been out because Leo had been out with um with um. Um, with Earl King and those guys, and Smokey Johnson and those and those guys, um, back in the early, you know middle sixties before he started before he just did, did the gigs with um started playing with with us, he had he had done 
done that stuff. Um, he's just a year older than I am. So he had been out on the road at an even younger age than I was. Um, so um, it was it was just a, a whole new uh, new idea that we had to develop. Because I mean, because there were parts of that 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 um of that uh, relationship of on the on the road that would uh, almost want you to say. I think I want to start staying home, you know. I think I think I'm safer on Bourbon Street, you know. But um, you know, by the time we got to the play the Apollo Theater and the Regal Theater and some of those those theaters back, you know, um, back in the day. I mean, to, to get to play in the Apollo Theater, you remember? After all, the first experience that we had with the Apollo Theater was James Brown alive at the Apollo Theater. So being in the same room where James Brown did that record at, but that was like, that was like, hmm, we must be good. <laughs> you know, something must be going on here, you know? Yeah. And um, so, you know, I, I, you know, my, 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 I guess my original gut feeling is that, you know, if I, today, if I had to change any of that, um, I would probably not change any of it. I would probably want to go and, you know, um, and learn about that because it was, it was, um, it absolutely had, had, it has influenced my growth and in, in the business, you know, as a, as a, as a artist, as well as a, as a musician. Um, George, was, well, that, was, that, was that pretty much your first time traveling outside of Louisiana uh, for these performances? And Well, that was my first time traveling outside of the South. <laughs> uh, you know, and um, with, uh, I, I did some dates, I can remember with Irma Thomas up in, you know, southern parts of Mississippi, Gulfport, you know, something like that, Mobile, Alabama, um, with... Um, Lake, well, Lake Charles. I think I might have went as far as in, in, into some part of Texas. I don't remember. It wasn't Houston another bigger city? It was a, you know, uh, a few a few miles into the uh, like Orange, Texas, or something like that. Back in the sixties, I know with Earl King. Um, no, not not much. I don't think. I think Jackson, Mississippi, might have been the highest up I ever went. Um, I don't believe I ever got to Atlanta or any of that kind of places um into in georgia back you know when i was a kid it's mostly mostly the gulf coast, gulf coast of mississippi biloxi gulfport pascagoula you know those kind of things so by the by the time the the meter started happening and that that's that our sophisticated sissy was hit hit the charts and stuff like that and they got they hired a booking agency they're bringing and they started bringing us up and we started working that 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 um that route that went from New Orleans to Mobile and from Mobile up to to to, um, to Atlanta and then over into the North Carolinas, you know, the Charlottes and um and the Charleston and um some of the uh, some of the Virginia cities all the way up all the way up to um you know, I want to say Highway 85, you know, 85 all the way up into New York, you know, 90 to 85, turned into 95 and went, ended up in New York somewhere. 
You know, and back in those in those days, I don't believe we ever got too far past New York City. Um, in the in the in the, early, in the late sixties or early seventies. Were you, were you the youngest in the band? No, no, Zig was the youngest in the band. Zig's a, a year younger than I am. Mm -hmm. So Zig, Leo, and myself was like a year apart, a year apart from each other. And Art, Art was 10 years older than I am. Mm -hmm. So kind of like a big brother in a way? Yeah, <laughs> yeah sort of like a big brother. You know, I, Art, was, Art never was my best friend, I think, at the time, you know. Mm-hmm. So tell me what it was like in the studio, George, uh, with the meters, as the meters, you know, uh, what what did Alan bring to the mix? You know, he's listed as producer. What well, was, what was yeah, his role? I guess that's one more myth we have to clarify. <laughs> uh, Alan Toussaint never one day stepped into the studio on doing a, a, a meter session. He he's not involved at all in any of our recordings. Um, mm -hmm. I, I believe um, he stuck his head in the studio one day while we were listening to a playback of the song, and um, and he um, and his words as well. He stuck his head in, and they stopped it. They stopped the read, and he he says something like, uh, "Oh, some more the same old thing." And uh, and it was it was you know it was a song that that I had brought to the table. It kind of broke my heart, but uh, um, but you know Skip Goblin, the engineer, said, "Huh, that's a good name. Let's call it the same old thing." And that's what we named the song, the same old thing. Uh, to make a, a lemonade out of a lemon, there. <laughs> so. What was it like though in the studio for you guys then? I mean, so then were you producing yourselves pretty much? We were we were we were we were self-producing uh, um um until you know the primary songwriters, you know, after the first those first three records where we were um Marshall Sehorn used to those first three records, Marshall would kind of be sitting in the studio while we were recording. But you know, very, very rarely had any input on what we were doing. You know, you know, just he just kind of sat in the studio to make sure that we didn't, you know, tear up the studio or some stuff like that. Because bands have been known to do known to do that, but we, you know, we weren't that kind of band anyway. Uh, um. So um, it was it was um, when we started doing the um, the salt the, the the cabbage alley stuff, not the cabbage alley stuff, but the. Uh, after the Cabbage Alley recording, the rejuven when we started working in C State Studios, uh, in in the city, um, you know, they, we they call it ever saw Matt Allen or Marshall. You know, we were just told that you have a block of dates. This is you you can come in, um, you know, this week from Monday to Thursday, come in do do some tracks. They lay down some tracks, and that's that's what we do it. The primary songwriters were more at that time was Zig and Leo, and um and Art had you know every would bring would bring a song in bring a song in mostly he would bring a song in after after you know just out of frustration of 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 having the Zig and Leo standing over and pouncing on him about what to play and how to play stuff because he wasn't just not used to just being told what to do you know <laughs> he just doesn't want to play what he wanted to play 
Um, so there was, you know, that, you know, pretty much the, the songwriters, uh, um, which at the point for me, I, I kind of gave up on the, on the, on the trying to fight the, the fight about whose song is going to get recorded because two things was happening with me at that, at that time. Um, and it's pretty much from, um, the rejuvenation records to almost to the, um, to the end of our, you know, recording career. I had just started getting high and I just, you know, I just didn't give a care anymore. You know, I just was like, what you want? And I, as soon as I do my parts, I'll disappear. I'll leave, you know, because I, I didn't, I didn't want to be a part of the, the arguing of over, you know, what gets done and what didn't get done. Um, you know, so uh, I withdrew um, from trying to, my, trying to use my voice when it was, you know, it was pretty much made clear to me earlier that my voice wasn't necessary, you know? So I, I guess kind of quit, quit that idea, you know? Mm. So how long did you battle that? Or how, how long did you go where, how long did it take for you to see it as a problem and how long did you battle that? Well, did I see that it was a problem with me getting high or the problem with yeah. the band? <laughs> no, the, the high part. Uh, uh, I got sober in 19, uh, well, I'm 29 years sober. So I'm thinking that was 1988 when, when I got when I got sober. I can go look at my blue book and see. <laughs> I think it was 1988. Yeah. I did, you try, did you try and fail before then? Say that again? Did you try different times before then and, and, and fail or? Um, I, I tried, I don't, I think I stopped uh, um, using cocaine and, and uh, uh, but didn't stop drinking or smoking pot. Um, so, you know, I mean, for me, I, the idea that it was cocaine was a problem, not, not smoking pot or, or drinking alcohol. So, and, and then I wasn't a big alcohol drinker, you know, so I, I did, you know, I did, uh, um, I think the World's Fair, at the time that the World's Fair happened in New Orleans, I had, um, I had, um, I pretty much was sober all the, or right after the World's Fair, I got, I got sober. Was it? Right after the, yeah, I got sober right after the World's Fair for a short period of time and then started again. Um, uh, with the cocaine, and, and then you know, and did cocaine all the way up until that morning. That uh, that morning that I came home, I thought my family was leaving, and and uh, they call. I called my mom, and my mom. I told them that she had to get me off the street, and because I was I was gonna die. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, we're all very glad that you know, you made it through that and that you're still around and you've made so much more great music since then. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> what, so you said it, it kind of caused you to withdraw a little bit in the creative process in the studio with the songs. Do you feel like it impacted you at all as a player or performer? No, you know, that's was something that I always debated with, you know, even, even today is that I'm, you know, I I thought that my ability to play was was and what I played was I think probably much stronger than than my desire to be high, you know, or or, or the need to be high while I'm playing. 
uh, uh, I, you know, because the stuff that I played and some of the stuff that, you know, again, there was some of that music that was dictated music, you know. So if somebody gave me a bass line to play, um, then I played that bass line, you know. I didn't, I didn't, and if, if I was told not to do anything other than that bass line, then I played what I was told to play, you know. I was, I was a, a professional sideman, you know. So I mean, and even today, as an, as you know, being an artist, but if I'm called into the studio today. Uh, I'm, I go in as a professional side man. I go in to play what you need, what you need for me. I'm not going in there to be George Porter Jr. I'm going in there to be what you need. Now, if, if somebody brings me into a session and don't have an idea what they want and tell me, well, you know, what do you think about this? You know, how would you approach this? Then, you know, I would, you know, I would, you know, then I, at that point, I would find out how much involvement um that I need to put into this song to make this a song and if I want writers parts <laughs> you know if if the if it's is at this point I'm I'm writing a song you know or, or, or co-writing a song but other than that uh, I I'm usually go into the studio to be the person that you require to be there I did that in my loaded days and I I do that still today <laughs> 